Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Tim Cross, the Economist Science Correspondent. And coming up on today's show are the current methods of treating celiac disease inhibiting the efforts to find a cure. Even in the medical community, a lot of physicians still believe that you can treat by avoiding gluten in general. This is a very dangerous misconception. And we speak to Andrew Lee about his new book on the history and future of randomised controlled trials. There's a surprisingly large area in which randomised trials can be ethically implemented and can teach us something about the world. But first, the technology industry is never short of a buzzword. And the newest one, or the newest buzz letter maybe, is Q. There's a proliferation of startups such as OneQbit, IonQ, and QX Branch. Even the tech giants like Microsoft have Station Q. IBM has a new unit simply called Q and nothing else. And the Q in this case stands for quantum. To understand a bit more, I'm joined in the studio by Jason Palmer, who's written extensively on this topic for The Economist before. Hi, Jason. Hello. So I guess for those who don't know, what exactly is quantum technology? It sounds sort of very futuristic. Well, it's sort of a blanket term for a number of emerging technologies that arise from scientists' ability to to control single atoms, single molecules with extraordinary precision. And when you can do that, you start to see quantum effects that were once mere laboratory curiosities. Once you have them under control, it turns out that they can be used in in applications, right? Uh, More sensitive sensors, arguably more secure cryptography, and in particular for computing. The weirdness that arises in these quantum systems actually turns out for some classes of problems to be really good for computing. So this is the use we've probably heard most about. So those startups I mentioned and IBM and Microsoft, that's where a lot of their money is going, isn't it, into trying to build a quantum computer? There's sort of two parts of the effort. Uh, hardware, the really difficult stuff, the stuff that you know, we've, we've known for quite some years can in principle be done. Um, and then the software, there, there's no point having an extremely powerful computer if you don't have you know, some software to run on it to, to sort of squeeze the best out of it. And so there's a, a real mix of, of activity both on the hardware and the software side. So we've been very clear that these things won't be just a sort of slot in replacement for existing computers, right? But they will be pretty good for some things. Well, what is it that's got people excited about them? What are the applications? The most obvious ones, the sort of the most irrefutable ones, have to do with simulating quantum systems themselves. These things are, you know, they live in the world of quantum mechanics. They're crunching through quantum mechanical rules and so on. That helps with actually kind of simulating real live physical systems. You can see quickly how that might help with drug design, which is kind of a bit of a black art at the moment. You make something that's roughly this shape, see if it works. That would be much more mechanistic. You would actually see what's going on at that sort of 
atomic and molecular level and sort of plan for it. So you can simulate the interactions of all the, you know, the molecules, the electrons, in a way that is just completely infeasible for even a massive modern computer. Exactly. It would take you know, years or hundreds of years for a classical computer to do. These things should be able to sort of crunch through that much more quickly. That leads fairly straightforwardly on to, for instance, designing new material. So if you are an aerospace company and you want some super light yet stiff material for your uh, airplane wing, you could go about developing a new material and then running it through its paces, or you could just sort of, you know, whack it into your quantum computer and see what would happen if you were to make this thing. There are plenty of other sort of slightly more speculative ones. I think there's, you know, there's reason to believe that, for instance, in massively complex sort of high numbers of variables kind of optimization problems like derivatives trading or, or something like that, that, that quantum should be able to help. But the truth is, um, a lot of the problems that they will be best at, I don't think we've yet found. You know, quantum computing has been around for a while. I've been covering science for quite a few years, and it's always been sort of on the edge of arriving. But things seem to have changed now. There's all this money flowing in. There's consultants are popping up. Some people are starting to say, actually, this looks a bit like a bit of a bubble, like there's a quantum bubble or some quantum foam if you want to do a really bad science joke. It's true. There is there is this massive proliferation of, of startups, the, some of which you, you named there. What seems a little bit odd is how many of them are sort of software um, and algorithm kind of outfits and how many are consultancies. If these things are as good as you know we, we imagine and as widely applicable as we imagine they will eventually be, that's going to disrupt quite a few industries and that makes a lot of room for middlemen to pop up and say, ha, aha, let me help you, large multinational, figure out how your business might be impacted by this and so on. So there has been an extraordinary growth in funding and interest in making the hardware and fair enough because it's you know enormously complex. But it seems a bit odd that there's just so many coders and consultants kind of working on problems for hardware that doesn't yet exist. And some people have actually made the comparison with AI and not AI now, but AI back in the sort of 60s, 70s and 80s when there was these sort of big promises that kind of didn't really lead to the places we hoped they'd lead to. And you had something called the AI winter when you know all the funders thought, actually, this stuff doesn't work. The money dried up. People lost their jobs. They went off to do other things. And it wasn't till, arguably, it wasn't till quite recently when the current progress in machine learning started to attract everyone's attention that that really ended. Are we going to see something similar here, do you think? Do you think this is this is going to sort of crash before it goes mainstream? I mean, just from historical examples like the one you name, it seems, you know, uh, that that is a real risk. Um, it's very hard to find the exact level of hype which is which is helpful to the field, right? You need some to draw on the attention, to draw the funding, to convince people that the promise is there. But you don't want so much that people say, you know, plunk down their money and say, okay, where are my results? And then kind of go running away when they don't come as fast as, as, as was promised. There is a little bit of concern within the field at the moment that all of this press and all of these startups and all these people kind of seeing first mover advantage every way they turn could kind of sour that. This is still damnably hard stuff to do in the lab um, and to understand, you know, even from a software point of view. But, but progress is definitely being made. It's just that if you look at the sort of mushrooming sort of one part of quantum technology, one part even of quantum computing getting absolutely massive might suggest that things are coming along faster than I think they probably will. But the promise makes it worthwhile to wait. So the message is calibrate your hype. Exactly. Great. Jason, thanks very much. Thank you. Next up, celiac disease is often grouped with allergies and gluten intolerance. But some scientists are starting to wonder whether this could be limiting our understanding of how the disease really works. To look into this and to try to find out more, here's The Economist science intern, Chiara Eisner. There's been a misunderstanding. Celiac disease is not what you think. 
You might have heard that some people don't feel too great after eating gluten, a protein found in wheat. So they try to avoid pasta, pizza, bread, and the like. Most of them have what's called sensitivity or an intolerance to gluten. Celiacs avoid the same kinds of food, but that's where the similarities end. The disease is genetic, so it runs in families that pass down one or two of the pair of genes associated with it. It's also an autoimmune disorder, meaning when a person has celiac disease, their immune system, which usually fights viruses, bacteria, and foreign bodies, malfunctions and attacks itself instead. This is a very serious condition, which can result in complications. The worst complication is the development of lymphoma. And that does not happen in non-celiac gluten sensitivity. There is no destruction. That was Dr. Francisco Leon, a clinical immunologist from Spain who's been studying it for 25 years. Even in the medical community, a lot of physicians still believe celiac is not a serious disease. It's a kind of allergy that you can treat by avoiding gluten in general. This is a very dangerous misconception. Misunderstood health conditions tend to be rare. Celiac disease is not. Just under 1.5% of the population suffers from it. That's about 76 million people. The confusion may be causing harm. In the U.S., there are about 2.8 million more people who have celiac disease than there are patients diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. 16 drugs have been approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for them. But for celiac disease patients, zero. Not a single celiac drug has ever been approved by the FDA. It's the only common autoimmune disease without an FDA-approved therapy on the market. They do have celiac.com, though. The site gives celiacs a space to talk in forums about the condition and share tips for living with it. It's clearly filling a need. The website is frequented by more than a million visitors a month. The site's founder, Scott Adams, has a typical story among celiacs. So the symptoms were pretty straightforward. They were pretty classic. Diarrhea, bloating, intestinal discomfort most of the time after eating. But they weren't identified early. I started going into doctors and trying to figure out exactly what was going on. And it took really about 10 years or so to get diagnosed. When he was finally told he had celiac disease, Scott went online to learn more about it. When I first got on the Internet, believe it or not, there was literally about a page and a half of information on a single website. And that was all I could find on celiac disease. Dr. Leon and his colleague, Dr. Marku Mackey, a professor emeritus at the University of Tampere in Finland and a winner of the Warren Junior Prize in Celiac Disease Research, are hoping Scott and the millions like him might finally have pharmaceutical as well as virtual support. In May, the two published excellent results from a proof-of-concept clinical trial of a potential new celiac drug. This is what Dr. Leon and Dr. Mackey's drug does to help. Our experimental medication, AMG714, this is a protein, therapeutic, which inhibits one of the key mediators of celiac disease called interleukin-15. Interleukin-15 stimulates the immune system of the gut to react against gluten. And this experimental medication blocks interleukin-15. What we saw is that the experimental medication could reduce symptoms, could reduce inflammation, 
in response to low levels of gluten consumption. So the drug blocks gluten from activating a celiac's immune system, but only small amounts of it. It's not expected to allow patients to eat normally, but rather it's meant to protect against contamination by gluten. Other researchers are taking on celiac disease from different angles. To understand one of these alternative therapies on the race to development, I spoke with Dr. Lindsay Hall, the leader of an English microbiology lab that studies bacteria in human intestines. She says there's good evidence to suggest that bad microbes can weaken the lining of the gut, forming holes in its thin wall. What happens is you then might have components that are found in the intestine going across the barrier and then interacting with the immune cells on the other side that might then cause inflammation. And that's been linked to a number of different conditions, including inflammatory bowel disease, so Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Her team isn't focused just on celiac disease, but on this range of diseases affected by the leaky barriers. To fix the gaps, the Hall Lab and others like it are trying to develop a therapy that we can specifically reintroduce those bacteria. Good bacteria like bifidobacteria, that is. So what they can hopefully do is come back into the system and actually start talking to the epithelial cells and encouraging them to repair that barrier so we can prevent that leakiness. You can actually specifically isolate bifidobacterium from healthy individuals and then the idea for that will be we want to take that forward into clinical trials in patients and see if we can repair the barriers. Dr. Hall is optimistic about getting these therapies to patients soon. I think probably I would envision maybe in the next five to eight years that we'll probably start seeing some form of microbial therapy on the market that might be able to more specifically target chronic inflammatory conditions. Although Dr. Hall says they've got some research still left to do, she's incredibly confident these kinds of drugs will be big business. It's potentially, I mean, I said this is going to revolutionise healthcare, I think. And there is actually there's a lot of commercial interest in this. So there's hope. But hope has been fed to celiac patients before. What these researchers need is more funding for their studies, support from biotechnology and pharmaceutical companies for development, and volunteers for clinical trials. If all goes well, celiac patients might have to hang on just a little longer. That was Kiara Eisner, and you're listening to Babbage from The Economist. If you enjoy our journalism, why not consider taking out a subscription? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer and you can get 12 issues for $12 or £12. Finally, these days the randomised control trial is the gold standard of evidence in medicine. But it's had a difficult and rather spotty history. To learn more about RCTs, as they're called in the industry, Kenneth Kuke, one of our senior editors, spoke to Andrew Lee. Andrew was an economics professor at the Australian National University before he left to enter politics, where he's now an Australian MP and the shadow assistant treasurer. He's also the author of several books, and his latest is Random Easters, How Radical Researchers Are Changing Our World. Here's Ken asking him about both his book and the history of RCTs. So the first question is, what are randomistas? So randomistas are those who are conducting randomised trials uh, in uh, the area of medicine. It's uh, the replacement of eminence-based medicine with evidence-based medicine. The randomistas are proliferating across developing economies. Uh, Angus Deaton famously used it as something of a critique, but I've picked up the title as a, as a compliment because there's a great deal of pride among those who are putting data and evidence ahead of ideology and supposition. Now, you call for this idea of radical experimentation. 
What do you mean by that? Well, I think there's been a, a significant change in medicine over the last couple of centuries, moving from the notion of putting expertise first to looking at the data. If you want to get a new drug on the public register these days in most advanced countries, you've got to have it uh, through a randomised trial. And I think much more of that could be brought to areas like crime, social policy and education. A highlight in randomist is the uh, ways in which randomised trials can throw up unexpected findings. The scared straight study, where it had been thought that exposing delinquent youths to a day in jail might set them on the straight and narrow, and actually turned it to increase their offending rate. Uh, in all kinds of areas, randomised trials are throwing up surprising results, challenging conventional wisdom, and helping us change the world. So for something that's so intuitively sensible... Why is it so hard to get the randomised control trials accepted? Well, I think one of the great traits of humans has been our degree of overconfidence. Overconfidence has served us very well from a biological perspective, but it turns out to be a problem when we're designing solutions to tough challenges. One of the things we're now learning is that 9 out of 10 drugs that look promising in the lab actually don't go through phase 1, 2 and 3 randomised trials with success. And much the same is true of promising educational interventions, promising ideas that are coming out of uh, business innovation mostly fail. So high quality evaluation takes overconfidence and meets it with great data. Now when Angus Deaton coined the term randomistas, as you pointed out, it wasn't a compliment. What was the problem? Well, certainly randomised trials don't work with every problem. If you're trying to work out uh, the right level of interest rates, if you're trying to work out how to reunify the Korean peninsula, uh, you're not going to have randomised trials. But there's a surprisingly large area in which randomised trials can be ethically implemented and can teach us something about the world. Yes, absolutely, we want to be careful about extrapolating into different areas. Something that works in Kuwait might not necessarily work in Kenya. But we do need to bring that a greater sense of modesty to a lot of what we do. And, and that's as true for business leaders as it is for policymakers. Uh, so this way that has swept medicine towards evidence-based medicine uh, could do a lot more to help us think better about philanthropy, about crime, about uh, creating jobs. Andrew, before I let you go, I have to ask the question. One of the most lovely aspects of the book is when you talk about our beloved placebo. And of course, one can't help but read that and think, well, gee, if placebos work so well, maybe we should use more of them. And we don't actually need the randomized control trial at all. We don't need the interventions. It is striking how well placebos work in certain instances. The results from sham surgery randomised trials are suggesting that uh, very common operations, such as a knee meniscectomy, uh, may not actually have a better impact on patients than a placebo in which somebody's sliced open, the operation isn't performed, and they're sewn back up again. So what is the final frontier for the randomised control trial? Have we arrived at the end point of how we're going to organise society by testing things, or is there something yet still to go? Well, I've always loved this uh, notion of an experimenting society, a society in which modesty meets numeracy, in which we've got a little less ideology in our public policy debates and a lot more evidence. I'd like to see us uh, bring the temperature down and a whole lot of uh, overheated political debates where really we, we agree on uh, across the ideological spectrum about what needs to be done and we're just debating the means of how to get there. Uh, areas such as uh, plastic surgery are currently doing almost no randomised trials. They're very rare in law. 
within uh, the area of criminal justice and education, randomised trials are not that common. In development economics, they are proliferating, and that's probably one area where perhaps we're reaching saturation point. But there's an awful lot more we can learn from high-quality evaluation. That's fascinating. Andrew, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. That was Andrew Lee speaking to Kenneth Kukie. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist, or you can find us online at economist.com. I'm Tim Cross. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.